0: You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Thanks, Adam. So as Adam said, the Bible reading is Exodus chapter 20. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 21. So Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and heard the trumpet, and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was.
1: Uh, Thanks, Chris. Uh, A couple of things uh, just before I pray. Uh, The first is uh, we're spending two weeks on this passage that Chris just read, and so don't be perturbed if I only... Today, we're mainly looking at verses 1 and 2, and next week we'll look at the rest of the passage. But I thought it was useful to read it all for context. Uh, The second thing is, I'm sorry if you've been a bit cold. It was remiss of us. This is the uh, kind of unpredictable Melbourne weather, the last time this kind of... uh, heating slash cooling system was turned on evidently it was on air conditioning uh because you know like yesterday was 25 or something you know uh and so uh i've turned it to heating someone may want to turn it off if you feel like it's still blowing cold air uh halfway through my sermon although maybe that'll keep you awake you know Uh, that could be a good thing uh anyway uh let's pray uh gracious father we uh thank you for this your word Father, I know that these uh, words that I have prepared to speak uh, are just uh, dead words uh, on a page or on an iPad, as it were, uh, if unless your spirit takes them up and brings life uh, and uh, brings your word home to our hearts and minds in a way that brings new life to us. Uh, so, Father, please do that this day uh, for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Speaking of my iPad, it's just had a strange, we'll get there, that was a bit anticlimactic. Great. So uh, uh, today one of the big questions I want you to think about is, uh, I wonder what you think the relationship is between rules and freedom. Rules and freedom. I wonder how, in your mind, those two concepts fit together. Uh, if you think they fit together at all, you might think they're kind of diametrically opposed. What's the relationship between rules and freedom? I think uh, there are some signs of changing, but I think that the dominant view in our culture is that freedom is found in throwing off all rules and boundaries. That's, that's the basic idea. Well, I think we see that in lots of areas of life. My uh, first kind of training out of year 12 was uh, as a classical trumpet player. Uh, I studied some music. I'm a, a kind of quite a big fan of classical music. Uh, and if you know classical music, you'll know that uh, one of the things that modern composers love to do is they kind of say, we'll only truly be free when we're breaking all the traditional rules and boundaries about music. We've got to break every rule about melodic lines and harmonic progressions and rhythmic patterns, uh, and they feel tremendously free, uh, and the rest of us feel less free to listen to their music. That's generally how it works. right? But we see this, they're, like, they're so free, they're breaking every rule and boundary. Uh, we see this in relationships too, don't we? Maybe a little more seriously. We're told that we'll be truly free when we can throw off the traditional view of marriage. We'll be truly free when the nuclear family is l- considered to be less central in the life of our society. That's the promise, at least. Uh, we see it uh, from some people in their understanding of economics. You know, We'll be really free as individuals, as a community, when we can, uh, when we can cut taxes and minimise government intervention and, and just free up individuals to spend their money however they choose. That's, that's the path to freedom. We see it in uh, some of the talk, the social talk around sexual practices, isn't it? Since the sexual revolution in the 1960s, we've been told that freedom will be found where we can throw off the the shackles of outdated sexual practices. Get rid of those old-fashioned sexual taboos. Those those were just repressing desires that should have been expressed. We see it in the area of, of speech as well. Some people say, I'll be free when I can say whatever I want to whoever I want, whenever I want. That's freedom of speech. Don't you dare put any limits around my speech. Are oh, We see it in our understanding of gender, or at least some of the debates around our understanding of gender. Where we're told that we'll really only be free when we can deconstruct the uh, kind of repressive social construct of binary gender. That'll bring us a whole lot more freedom. It'll lead us to flourish and thrive as a community. And and of course we see it in the area of, of spiritual beliefs as well. And we're told that real freedom is found in rejecting the ideas of of traditional religions. Throwing off the shackles of of the mainstream religious institution. Reject any belief in a a traditional God at all. Reject spirituality altogether. Or perhaps you can find some new form of spirituality, some new way of connecting with the so-called transcendent, which is often just something else in this world. The prevailing view of our culture uh, is that freedom is found in throwing off all rules and boundaries. And of course, I'm not denying uh, that there aren't any ignorant or unjust or repressive uh, kind of systems of belief, structures. There are all sorts of things that people really do need to be liberated from. There are those things. But I do want to suggest that in general, freedom is not found in just simply throwing off all rules and boundaries, but in living within good and wise boundaries. I'll say that again, it's pretty important. Freedom is not found in, in simply throwing off all rules and boundaries, but in living within good and wise boundaries. I'll give you some examples, from, maybe from your daily life. Many of you uh, enjoy the freedom of driving a car, uh, I don't enjoy the freedom of driving a car anymore because of my vision impairment, but that's all to the good for your freedom to drive a car, right? And, and, so, and that's part of the thing, isn't it? Like, you enjoy the freedom of driving a car because our roads are regulated by a strict set of rules, Within the, those, the boundaries of those good and mostly wise rules, you know I'm sure there are some that frustrate you, but within the boundaries of those rules, you and others are free to enjoy driving a car around. If not for those rules, everything would descend into chaos. And maybe some of you enjoy playing sport. It's the same with sport, isn't it? You have the freedom to play that sport uh, because you and the other team or you and the other person uh, agree to pl- uh, play within a particular set of rules. If you've ever played a game where someone just said, well, I'm going to blow off the rules altogether or the referee's not enforcing the rules, it's utter chaos and disorder. If you're not a fan of sport, maybe you can think about your favourite board game or something. I'm not into board games, but, you know, like uh, uh, b- the game's governed by a particular set of rules. And we see this in parenting as well. Uh, it's a bit more of a relational example. Uh, you can Google it later on if you like. There's a, a kind of well-known secular researchers say that there are essentially four main styles of parenting. Uh, the, the first style is called neglectful parenting, which we hope that no child experiences, really, don't we? But sadly, many do. Uh, and neglectful char- uh, parenting is, is characterized by no love and affection uh, and no rules and boundaries. And then you've got indulgent parenting, uh, which you might imagine is about uh, kind of low levels of rules and boundaries, uh, but pretty high levels of love and affection. And then you've got authoritarian parenting. Maybe you had a parent like this, I don't know, uh, who was very, very high on rules and boundaries, but very, very low on love and a connection and affection. And the fourth style is authoritative parenting, uh, which is very, very high on love and connection and affection and, and very, very high on rules and boundaries and limits. And it's really interesting, Uh, secular researchers have found that children with authoritative parents, parents who really connect with their kids, love their kids, show affection to their kids, uh, and parents also who discipline their kids with with kind of fairly strict rules and boundaries, children with authoritative parents are the most likely to flourish, the most likely to to, uh, thrive and, and be mature and stable and happy adults. But freedom is not found in throwing off all rules and boundaries. It's found within good and wise and loving boundaries. I may be a different angle on this. I'm going to get the guys to put up a picture of a uh, fish. It's not a great picture, but hopefully you can see and get the gist. Some of you have seen this picture before. Uh, the question is underneath... When do you think the fish is free? When is the fish free? Of course, from one perspective, the fish is free when it's jumping out of the bowl. Imagine the fish, liberated from the repressive restrictions of the bowl. So free. Yet from another perspective, it's only free when it's in the bowl. Because it's living within the boundaries of water. Water. That which it was created to live and thrive and, uh, and flourish as a fish. Freedom is found not in throwing off all rules and boundaries, but in living within good and wise boundaries. And I've kind of wanted to dwell on this point a little bit uh, as we come to this next section of the book of Exodus. Over the next three weeks, we're looking at five chapters of the book of Exodus. Uh, And in these chapters, God is going to deliver a whole lot of rules and demands and, and essentially set boundaries for his people. And uh, so as we come to that, uh, we've got to understand some of the cultural pressures that, that uh, kind of are telling us, oh, all rules and boundaries are, are opposed to freedom. We're, we've got to acknowledge that, and we've got to say, no, 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 no. Freedom is not found in throwing off all rules and boundaries, but in living within good and wise boundaries. In, in particular, the good and wise boundaries are of our Creator God, now, I say creator God, but because this is something that's true, not just of Christians, or many of you here are Christians, but it's actually true of every human being. Either the story of the Bible begins with the one true and living God making everyone and everything. And in, the, and in Genesis chapter 1, we see that in the process of, of creating everything, what God does is bring order out of chaos, order out of chaos so when we look at the world uh, we see that it's a well-ordered world a world that's governed by particular rules and laws most of us accept that even if you're not a Christian you accept that when it comes to certain physical laws physical rules if you you, can think about uh, you might say well uh, the law of gravity for example Right, you could fight the law of gravity if you want to, but you'll soon discover, uh, if you jump off a building or something, uh, that it actually exists. Right? That the world is governed by the law of gravity. Right? The law of thermodynamics, the water cycle, the, the kind of process of photosynthesis. These are laws that God has weaved into the fabric of his creation. So most of us accept that there are these physical laws, but, but God has also weaved into his creation certain moral laws, which is to say that as human beings, if we live within the good and wise boundaries of our creator God, uh, we'll be free, we'll flourish, we'll thrive as human beings because we're living. it's like we're living in sync with the dance that's at the very heart of reality. We're living in tune with the melody that's at the heart of reality, you see. In line with these moral laws that God has weaved into the fabric of his creation. And this is why, uh, So you see, even though uh, here in Exodus chapter 20, Chris read before a whole lot of laws about morality, about how God's people should live. Yeah, they're fully revealed here in Exodus 20. They're written down for the first time here in Exodus 20. Uh, but they're actually uh, a part of the story of the Bible from the very beginning. In that they're weaved into creation and they're imprinted on the conscience of every human being made in God's image. You can chase that up in, in Romans chapter 2 where Paul talks about how everyone has God's law written on their conscience sometimes accusing them when they live in line with God's law, sometimes defending them, uh, accusing them when they don't live in line with God's law, defending them when they do. So if you read through the book of Genesis, for example, you could start in Genesis chapter 4, and Cain is condemned for murdering his brother Abel. It's not because God had said, thou shalt not murder to Cain. It's just assumed that Cain would know that murder is wrong, that he's breaking God's law. It's written into the fabric of God's creation. You can trace this through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 9, uh, Ham is, con- is cursed by God for dishonoring his father Noah. Genesis chapter 20, Abraham is condemned for his lies. Genesis chapter 31, Rachel is condemned for her theft. God's law is weaved into the fabric of his creation. It's imprinted on the conscience of every human being, which means that every human being is accountable to God as their creator uh, in accordance with his law. It means that uh, when we live, that uh, kind of living within the good and wise boundaries of God's law leads to a humanity uh, that is free and thriving and flourishing, Uh, But rejecting the good and wise boundaries of God's law leads to a humanity that's full of sin, uh, that's full of chaos, uh, that's full of suffering. So that's for every human being. Now I understand that for some of you, that's outside of your frame of reference. You've got no idea of a God outside of this world who had created everything and weaved certain laws into his creation. I understand that. I'm just saying that this is how it is, at least from a Christian perspective. Uh, Of course, the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 20, they're not just every human being living underneath the rule of their creator God. Uh, We saw last week that they're God's chosen people. Remember Exodus 19, 5 and 6? God's uh, treasured possession, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. So why should Israel in particular... Listen to, trust, and live within the boundaries of God's law that they're about to receive. What incentive do they have to do that? What reason do they have to do that? Well, that's what I think the point of verses 1 and 2 is. This is kind of the preface to the Ten Commandments, uh, where God gives his people a whole bunch of reasons why they should listen to and live within the boundaries of his law. So if you look at verse 1, the first thing I want you to notice uh, is that these are words that come directly from God to his people. Uh, In Exodus 19, if you were here last week, you can flick back if you like, uh, but Moses ascended Mount Sinai three times, and each time God gave him a a particular set of words to go back down and speak to his people. Uh, So Moses had this role of mediating God's word to God's people. He brought the word of God to God's people. Uh, but in Exodus chapter 19, verse 9, God also said to Moses, uh, Let me find it. He said, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, uh, that the people will hear me speaking with you uh, and will always put their trust in you. You get the idea. God wants his people to hear some words directly from him, to hear the very voice of God speaking out of the cloud, not mediated through Moses. And that's what happens here in Exodus chapter 20. God has descended on Mount Sinai in this dense cloud of his glory. And in verse 1 we read, And God spoke all these words of the very voice of God, speaking to all of his people, not just to Moses, but to all his people. And we see at the end of the passage that is absolutely terrifying, down in verses 18 and 19. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and uh, heard the trumpet, uh, and uh, saw the um, sorry, excuse me, saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. Uh, they stayed at a distance and said to Moses, "Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. Uh, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die." God wants his people, despite their fears, their terror, to hear these words directly from him. Well, they must be very important. Not everything God says is not that his people hear directly from him. So these are very important words. And in verse 2, God reminds his people of who he is, a reminding of them of exactly why. They can trust his words. Why? They should live within the boundaries of these words. First, in verse 2, God says, I am the Lord. You see there in your Bible, uh, it's the kind of small caps, Lord. Uh, You might remember that this is the personal name of God, that the God revealed to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. It's this name that should remind the Israelites that the one speaking to them, the one who's about to deliver all these commands to them, uh, is the one uh, who has bound himself to them in loving faithfulness. He is their covenant Lord in loving faithfulness. He is their ever faithful Lord. You remember the book of Exodus makes a big deal of the fact that God made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And he's repeatedly shown himself to be faithful to those promises. He's the God who delivers on his promises each and every time. So what does that mean? It means that when God speaks these words to his people, Israel, they can know that his words are trustworthy. That he'll be faithful to his words. That these words are spoken for their good for their freedom, for their flourishing as his people. He is their ever faithful Lord. And he's bound himself to them, to them in loving, faithful, loving faithfulness. He's, this is the Lord who's constantly pursued Israel in his love. And the Lord who is sovereign over every nation, but has chosen specially to set his love and affection upon Israel. He's been constant in his absolute devotion to them, uh, even when they've wavered in their devotion to him. He's their ever-faithful Lord, their ever-loving Lord. Uh, He's also their ever-holy Lord. Uh, In Leviticus chapter 19, you can read it later on, uh, there's another passage where God is delivering a whole bunch of commands to his people. And in it, he repeatedly says this phrase, I am the Lord your God. I don't know about you, but when you read that phrase in the Bible, I wonder if you think that God's on some sort of power trip. You say, Why why should I listen to you, God? Why should I obey these rules? Because I am the Lord your God. You know, it just sort of feels like, you know, a a massive mallet or something. Just kind of do it. And of course, there, there is. Like, we do have to approach God with real awe and reverence and respect for who he is uh, but i'm pretty sure god's not on a power trip here at the start of exodus at the start of Leviticus chapter 19 where god repeatedly says i am the lord your god uh, he says be holy because i the lord your god am holy you remember back in exodus chapter 3 Uh, When God revealed his name to Moses, he said, what does the name mean? It means, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I think what God's saying here is that I have been, I am, and I always will be holy. I am the holy Lord, just as he said in Leviticus 19. Uh, So he's saying, you must be who you are my holy people, my holy nation, living within the boundaries of my holy law because I am who I am. And you're supposed to imitate my holiness, to be holy as I am holy. Why wouldn't Israel want to live within the boundaries of this wonderful God, their ever-faithful God, their ever-loving God, their ever-holy God, who despite his holiness... Is so eager to dwell with them. Are there God who is their personal God? you see there? I am the Lord your God. And this is the heart of what it means to be a part of God's people. From Genesis 17 verse 7, God promised Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you uh, and your offspring after you. Uh, throughout the generations, uh, an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. The commands in these chapters that we're going to read from the book of Exodus don't come from some random or unknown God. They don't come from a distant and disinterested God. They come from the personal God of Israel, the God who was drawn near to Israel and bound himself to them by covenant promises But he's blessed Israel. He's multiplied Israel. We saw that in Exodus chapter 1. He's redeemed Israel. He's protected and cared for Israel. He's drawn near to Israel here at Mount Sinai. This is the personal God of Israel who's repeatedly shown himself to be a good and wise and faithful God, a God who can be trusted. And he's finally, the God... Uh, who has freed his people from their slavery in Egypt. Uh, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Uh, You might remember last week uh, we spoke about the importance of getting the order of salvation right. I use that phrase that God's deliverance comes before his demands. That's really important, isn't it? Because in, this, in these chapters that follow, God's going to deliver all sorts of demands to his people, lots of rules and limits and boundaries. But we've got to remember that he's delivering those commands to his people who He has already shown grace and mercy and compassion to. He's already liberated them from their slavery in Egypt. So he's saying to them, not obey these commands so that you might earn my grace, earn my acceptance. He's saying, because I've accepted you, because you've experienced my grace, now respond to my grace by obeying these commands. Or what are these commands? They're a guide to how God's people can respond to his grace and live out their newfound freedom. They're not to enslave his people again. They're not to burden his people again but to preserve and protect and allow them to flourish in their newfound freedom as his people. So this leads really to the final kind of section of my sermon today, which is as we come to these chapters from Exodus, I want to make sure we have the right approach to God's law. Uh, there broadly there might be three kind of categories, three ways of approaching these chapters from exodus and god 's law in general. Uh, the first is what you might call the religious approach or maybe a kind of legalist kind of uh, legalism type approach uh, and this is the person uh, who says maybe maybe this is you, maybe this is the framework you 're coming from uh, it 's the person who says, "I must obey god 's law, I must follow its rules and tick the boxes uh, it all in a desperate attempt. For, him to, uh, for me to save myself. A desperate attempt to free myself. Now, Of course, that approach doesn't lead to freedom at all, does it? It just means that you spend your life enslaved to a kind of spiritual yo-yo based on your religious performance. Or when, when you think you're doing a good job uh, of obeying God's law, uh, you're kind of at the top of the yo-yo, right? Uh, you feel pretty good about yourself, maybe a bit self-righteous, uh, maybe a bit proud, maybe you even look down your nose at people and you say to God, a bit like the, uh, the Pharisee in, in Luke chapter 19, uh, you know, I praise you God that I'm not like those people over there. You're at the top of the yo-yo, you know, you're feeling good. I mean, the next breath, you, you feel like you're not doing a good job and you're at the bottom of the yo-yo. You feel discouraged, you, you feel even in despair at times. You feel incredibly irritated and frustrated with yourself. Why? Oh, I should be doing better than this by now. You feel irritated at other people because they should be doing better by now. And you feel incredibly irritated with God because he owes you better than he's giving you right now. And which is really the heart of the problem with this religious approach to God's law. It leads to a, a, a kind of completely distorted picture of God. A picture of God where he's distant and disinterested, he's tight-fisted, he's demanding, he's oppressive, and the only way to to get any sort of blessing out of God's hand is for you to spend your life slaving away in obedience to his law. And even then there's no guarantee, because he's not generous, he's not gracious. You see, this is the religious God. We should reject this approach to God's God. It just doesn't match up what we see in the book of Exodus, does it? A God who has graciously freed his people from their slavery. A faithful Lord. A Lord who doesn't say to his people, obey these commands and then you might get some blessing from me. You. you might get some grace from me. I don't know. He says, I've graciously saved you. All of my work, and so now live out your freedom in Christ by uh, live out your freedom by obeying my law. So that's the first approach, this religious approach, where we've got to get that out of our minds when we come to God's law in these passages. Uh, the second approach is what you might call, uh, a broadly, an irreligious approach. Uh, and within this irreligious approach, uh, I've kind of talked about two groups of people. They're definitely not exactly the same. The first group of people uh, are the people who are all about self-law or self-rule. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the word autonomy. Our culture loves kind of the idea of autonomy. It comes from the, the Greek word auto, which uh, is for self. The Greek word nomos, which is for law. Uh, and so it's all about Self-law, self-rule, right? These are the people uh, who essentially think that life would be so much better if they were in control rather than God. If they were the king rather than God. If they were the one sitting at the top defining what is right and wrong rather than allowing God to define what is right and wrong. Right? This is the person who's all about self-law. They don't like God's law. They don't like God's rule. They reject it. Because the only way to be free is to liberate yourself from God and his law. So that's the self-rule. but there's another kind of uh, angle on this, which is the people who aren't so much about self law or self-rule, but they are, well, they're anti-God's law, at least in certain ways. Uh, that this is the term antinomian. Maybe some of you have heard that before. Uh, I said uh, to Gabby about this earlier. I said, I'm going to talk about antinomians today. And she said, Yeah, I'm antinomes too. They're creepy little creatures you find in gardens, um, which I thought was quite good. I said I'd throw it in. Uh, but anyway, it's, not, it's, it's anti as in against uh, and nomos as in law, you know, so that they're anti God's law. Uh, there's two kind of expressions of the kind of full-blown expression of antinomianism uh, is a little bit along the lines, if you want to read Romans chapter 6 later on, the person who kind of rightly says, I've been wonderfully freed by God's grace, like Israel being freed from their slavery in Egypt, uh, and so now it just doesn't matter how I live, isn't it wonderful? You know, the more I sin, the more God has the opportunity to show grace, uh, and that just brings more glory to God." Of course, that completely misses the point of God's saving. God doesn't just save us by his grace. He wants to sanctify us by his grace. He wants to change and transform us by his grace so that like Israel, we would be holy as he is holy. So we've got to kind of reject this idea that, that kind of how we live the Christian life in obedience to God is just not important. All we've got to talk about is God's grace. No, no, no. But I mean, there's a kind of subtler expression of antinomianism, uh, which might be along the lines of, yeah, well, sure, I'm not free to live however I want. Like, as a, as a Christian, uh, I've got to live a life of love right, by the power of God's Spirit. Uh, but God's actual law, maybe the specifics of the Ten Commandments, that has nothing to do with that. I'm not kind of bound to obey any particular commandment. So I, I've been set free from God's law. There's a bunch of questions here. We're going to explore them over the next couple of weeks. And of course, uh, as, as, a, as a Christian, if you've put your faith in Christ, you have been set free from God's law in that you've been set free from the spiritual yo-yo. or You don't have to prove yourself to God through your own works by obeying his law. Uh, but, of course, the problem with this perspective on God's law is that it only sees God's law exclusively as a burden that, that leads you to put your faith in Christ. It doesn't see God's law as, at all as a gift from God uh, to guide you in your life in Christ. That's the problem. Uh, so it rejects God's law altogether uh, as a guide for how you might live out your freedom in Christ, living a life of love for God and love for others, So I reckon that when you see God's law as a gracious gift from him, not just as a burden to point you to Christ, but as a gift from him to kind of guide you in how to live your life in Christ, I reckon the words of Psalm 19 will resonate with you more. The psalmist says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. than honey from the honeycomb. But someone who's anti-God's law would have a lot of trouble saying those words, wouldn't they? God's law is just an oppressive burden to escape, and not a precious gift to guide me in how I might live. You see, even though the religious and irreligious approaches to God's law seem quite different on the surface, surface. you know, one person's kind of obsessively committed to obeying the law and one person's rejecting God's law altogether, the reality is they share a very common view of God, which is that God and his law are oppressive and narrow and restrictive, not life-giving at all in any way. Uh, but as Christians who've heard and believed the good news of the gospel of what God has done for us in Christ, we've we've got to reject both those approaches to God's law. But We know that just as God drew near to the Israelites at Mount Sinai in all his glory, so also in Christ he is drawn near to us in all his glory. We know that just as God revealed himself to the Israelites by speaking to them in a powerful word, so also God has revealed himself to us by speaking to us in Christ, the ultimate word, the ultimate powerful word from God. And we know that just as God graciously freed the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb, so also God has freed us from our slavery to the the pharaohs of this world, to money and sex and power. He's freed us from those by the blood of Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. And we know that just as God referred to Israel, described Israel as his precious firstborn son, So also we, through faith in Christ, have been adopted as God's precious sons and daughters. So we know that just as God gives Israel his law, not to burden them, not to oppress them, but as a gift to them, to live out their freedom as his people, that they might flourish as his people, that they might be holy as he is holy, so also God gives us his law. If you're someone who's put your faith in Christ, who's been liberated through faith in Christ, he gives you his law as a guide for how you might live out your freedom in Christ, to flourish as one of his children, to be holy as he is holy. All this, in the end, comes back to your view of the character of God. And I want to suggest that our God has shown himself to be a wonderful father. Father. Uh, a good and gracious and generous Father, Uh, a Father who showers us with every good gift, uh, and His law is one of those gifts that Paul says in Romans 7 is perfect and righteous and good. Uh, The law is God's good and wise boundaries given to us uh, that we might live and thrive and flourish as His children uh, and be holy as He is holy. Uh, Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank You for this, Your Word. Uh, we pray that uh, we would indeed uh, have the right approach to your law, uh, that we would not uh, seek to uh, obsessively obey it, to free ourselves, uh, that we would not uh, reject it rebelliously in an attempt to free ourselves, uh, but that we would be freed through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ uh, and then see your law as a gracious gift to us, uh, as a guide for how we might live out our freedom in Christ.